Welcome to the Band of Brothers podcast. Our current series is entitled The Roles of a Man. We are led by Don Mutton, the singles minister at Houston's First Baptist Church, and Eric Reed, the minister to men and married young adults at Houston's First Baptist. We're glad that you're joining us, and we hope that you have a blessed day. Anything uh, from past week's clarification, questions? Uh, aha moments, anything? Hot that... stock picks, lottery <laughs> ticket numbers, uh, anything really? Post over Saints. Is that the prediction? I don't know. I don't know what the, I don't know. It's hard to go against the Saints. I yeah. mean, such a, a, a storied program. Yeah. It's hard to pick against them. The win to get lucky again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they don't have Brett Farr to throw into the interception. Uh, uh, he wish he had that ball back a bit. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thanks for your love for us. Thanks for the privileges to uh, trust you and to rely upon you. Thank you for the privilege to walk with you. Mm. And so as we uh, take the step forward and just uh, clarify and understanding, Father, we pray that as we walk in obedience to that, that uh, we'd sense your presence, we'd sense your pleasure and that we walk uh, humbly with you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Turn to the page. It has, this little looks like that. It has a little uh, card on it. I think it's 16 maybe in your in your notes there. Maybe 17. It should be like the last page which you got so far. Uh, I rewrote it. I think I, I reprinted it up for this week. I reprinted it off for this week. There you go. It's kind of an overview. We're now we talked about the rules, we talked about the principles. Now we're getting to this idea of the roles in terms of how and this becomes kind of the practical tools. These are things we can put to practice and it's the high ideals of where we can live. And so we're kind of in this next position, this next area that we're looking at. So we're going to look at our first one today. We're going to look at the idea of being the protector. The characteristic is the idea of being the guardian. And the illustration that we're going to give is a picture of the safe harbor. And so we'll, uh, we'll talk through that. And so, uh, what's our thesis? What's our, our overall arching thesis for roles of man? Anybody remember that? Top of their heads. Women don't want to dominate or be dominated. They want to be led well. And so, uh, the idea behind that is that as we as men take our roles, <coughs> that at that point we lead well. We lead with a listening ear. We lead, lead in a, an appropriate way being morally accountable to the rules of the game, to be uh, to take the principles of what those games would call us, and we do those principles, put those to practice, thus giving us a rule. So let's put this in a football analogy. You have rules, out of bounds, touchdown lines, 10 yards, first down, rules. Can't break them, don't change. Principles would be things of establish a run before you establish a pass. Uh, pass wins games, uh, run wins championships. Uh, you have principles that work. Uh, uh, control the clock uh, wins games. Uh, eliminate turnovers. Other things that you say, those are principles, those are things. Roles would now be the players on the field. So you have the role of the quarterback. You have the role of the lineman. You have the role of the defense. You have the roles. And these are the practical functions that then carry out those rules and those principles. And so now we're talking about our roles within that, that game of life that role in terms of being a man. Now, again, we're talking about this being a role that is carried out whether we're married, whether we're single adults, whether our kids have left home. We're talking about the roles as a man that we carry into society, we carry into our marriage, we carry into everything uh, in, in our world. So as God has blessed us and made us as men, we carry this role with us also. 
And so we carry that. The better we do this role, the better in the sense the people and the players around with us do within the game of life. Okay? So uh, let's look at the uh, next page, the uh, role of protector. The picture is going to be the picture of a safe harbor. Someone read that, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must eat, must not eat from any tree in the garden? So what we see is that the serpent immediately when he walks into the scene, remember the serpent approached who with the with the sin? Who did he approach? Approached Eve. But now we see that uh, as he approaches Eve, what we see is he's avoiding, very purposely avoiding Adam in terms of this. And so we see an avoidance. So when your serpent arrives on scene, he purposely avoids going to Adam. So he purposely avoids that and sits head roll. Instead of kind of going towards the uh, coach or going towards the quarterback, he kind of walks in around on the other side of it and says, hey, let me talk to you. And he kind of walks to the side and, and talks instead of the person who's leading the charge, who's leading the game, who's giving direction to that, and kind of goes around that a bit. Let's look at uh, Genesis 3, 6. What's Adam doing during this time? Somebody read that? He was in the wood shop, Don. <laughs> he was in the wood shop. He, he gets ready to get people put in the wood shop. The woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gain of wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. He ate it, so he was standing with her. Yeah, and he was with her, and so... And then, so he's kind of watching. It's kind of this game being played. You almost see it uh, being played out. He's saying, hmm. As he watches uh, uh, Satan approaching Eve, he says, huh, I've watched that tree. That looks pretty attractive. There's something that I'm kind of drawn to with that tree, but I'm going to watch. If something good happens for Eve, then I'll join <coughs> Eve. If something ha bad happens, I can now blame her. So he kind of plays this little showman, this little game. What he basically does is he's silent. And he stands alongside of her. There's a book that I recommend. It's called The Silence of Adam. It talks a great deal about this whole idea. So instead of uh, Eve being involved, or uh, Adam being involved with this at the get-go, because remember there's something that happens in this whole dialogue. Remember that Eve even misquotes what God says. There's, a, there's an opportunity for, for Adam, even at that point, to step in and say, whoa, whoa, whoa Eve, you, that's not right. But he sits back and watches, and even lets her misquote that and misunderstand that. Watches what's going on in terms of the scene, and as he's in fact in the in the King James, it says, uh, and he was along. Uh, he was in, uh, and he was silently with her. I think he even uses that word silent. He was silently with her. It talks about this whole idea that he is sitting back, saying nothing, and just observing what's happening. That's so a, that's uh -huh. a great. Well, I think I'm in last week. I really. Yeah, it was Larry, Larry Crabb's first uh, book that he wrote, but he wrote it with two other authors, and so it's a real, maybe even three, two other author, authors at least, and they write about some different roles, some different ways that we uh, project silence. Sometimes we're silent, but we're actually very talkative, but we talk about nothing. And so we get off the subject, we change subject, we deal with something different. Sometimes we have good role models, and we have good models, and we let them carry it out for us. So we, again, don't participate in it. Multiple different other ways in which we can actually be engaged in this. And so, after the original sin is committed, God then does something very important. He goes to Genesis chapter 3, 9, he says this, But the Lord God called the man, where are you? 
And instead of then, Satan voids uh, Adam. Adam is silent and is with her, joins in with the sin, because he didn't see anything harmful happen to her immediately. He then goes, okay, nothing. Let me now join you. He then joins her at that point. But then God then doesn't approach Eve and says, Eve, what'd you do? Doesn't say, Adam and Eve, what'd you do? Says, Adam, where are you? And ask him the question. That is, was God kind of like, oh, I don't know where you are. I can't see you. <laughs> no, God was not, in a sense, saying, where are you? He was saying, Adam, there's a question for Adam. Where are you? What's going on? We're, we're, you're distant. You're far from me. What's happened? Where are you now? Just like we ask our teenage kids. Where are you? What's going on? What's happening? Nothing. What you doing? Nothing. And you get the whole answer. And so there was an aspect in which Adam had distanced himself from God. With, uh, with Adam, if you think about up in Minnesota, the headwaters of the Mississippi are forming up there. Little small trickle going down. It leads into bigger tributaries. More rivers come in and it comes out in the Gulf. Massively huge river. And Adam stands at the head of humanity, right? And, and, and literally, there's a contamination from one man goes into that river. It's polluted from the very beginning. And it's Adam. It's real easy for us to say, well, what can one man do then? Because I'm not Adam, you know? I always wondered, if I was Adam, could I withstand and therefore save everyone? And I, I concluded quickly, heck no. I, I would have probably caved in or been silent or done worse, okay? But in Scripture, I want you all to see that there is the power of one man standing, actively fighting for other people is honored by God throughout the Old and the New Testament. I want us to... To take a little walk through a couple of passages of Scripture. In Ezekiel 22, and, and I think there's a lie of the enemy. Satan is the father of lies. And one of the big lies is, there's been many times in my life I felt like I don't need to speak up. I don't need to stand up. My voice doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And when I read passages like Ezekiel 22, I realize that that's not God's perspective on my life. It's not God's perspective on your life. God's desire is that we would be that man that is described here. And so Ezekiel 22, 30, and 31. Who would read that out loud? We've got these air vents are pretty loud. So just read, read that verse out. And y'all listen here as you do it. John? I'm looking for a man among them who will build up the wall and stand before me in a gap on behalf of the land. So I would not have to destroy it, but I found none. So I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my very anger, anger bringing down on their heads all they have done, declared the Solomon. Had God found one man walking with him, what would have happened? It would have saved him, right? Now think about Noah. I mean, God found a, God found a righteous man, right? A man of faith. That, through faith, he was righteous. And Greg, Pastor Greg just preached through sort of that, that deal. Hey, we want to be the Noah, right? We want to be the guy that even though the people around you maybe are mocking you, we've never seen rain. <laughs> we walk out obedience to God in our culture and it makes a difference. Humanity survived through the seed of Noah. And the beautiful thing is Christ came. The, the Savior of all of us came through that very same seed. One man mattered. 
It says here, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, Genesis 6, 8. And later in Genesis, if you remember, you, you have the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And again, God goes down and he looks and he says, if I could find 10 men, and it was a big haggle that went on. You know, find a hundred, find this, find this, and then just 10 men. And of course, were there 10 righteous men? No, there weren't. If God came down to Houston, Texas today and said, I need 10 righteous men, which of us would have encountered him at such a level that we would actually rise up like Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah and could say, here, here am I. Send me, Lord. Here am I. I'll be, counted. I'll be counted for you in this culture today. And so as men, it matters. Your role matters here. 2 Samuel 10, 11, and 12. If y'all would turn there and maybe Rick, I don't know if that's in there. Is that in your is that in your notes? 2 Samuel 10, 11 and 12. Don and I, we are looking through this, and Don's like, hey, I got this verse I want you to check out. And then we, we read it. And listen, listen to this. 2 Samuel chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Now David's already had some conquest and won some battles and all that stuff. So he already has some notoriety. But but here, Andy said. If the Syrians be too strong for me, then thou shalt help me. But if the children of Ammon be too strong for you or thee, then I will come and help thee. Be of good courage. And here's the phrase. And let us play the man for our people and for the cities of our God. And Jehovah do that which seems good to him. Let us play the man. And in other translations, it comes out like this. If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Same words, one translation says, play the man. The other says, to be brave and to fight courageously. There is a connection for us to say that we are not truly men if we are not fighting for other men, other families, other people in our culture. And I don't mean militarily fighting, I'm saying spiritually engaging. We are not being the man that God has destined and created us to be. So there's some questions in here that are that are in some ways rhetorical. But yeah, so the first six questions you see there, they're just rhetorical questions, you gotta, but you can't answer them. There's got to be a yes or no to those, those questions. The last question there, uh, number seven, it says, what does a godly man bring emotionally and physically and spiritually that a, that a balance, a, 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 a lady who's got it together, a spiritual lady, uh, what is that a, a spiritual lady can't bring? What, what does a loving, emotionally involved man bring to the society, a family, or a church that a loving, emotionally involved woman cannot bring? Any ideas? Can a lady be courageous? A lady, I think, can be courageous. I mean, you got Deborah in, the, in Scripture, and there's a judge. That's a great example. I think Mary is unbelievably courageous. I think it was a, so, but oftentimes a man brings courage, yeah. Leadership. 
Yeah, yeah, guy should bring leadership. Can a lady bring leadership? I mean, Margaret, Margaret Thatcher was an unbelievably godly lady who brought leadership to a nation. Can, can a lady, can a lady bring leadership? I think so. I think oftentimes guys, though. In the absence of a man, they have to step up. Yeah, in the absence of a man, they got to step up. What are they, if, they, if it's in the absence of a man, they got to step up. What are they stepping into? Responsibility. Responsibility? Here's, when I, when I kind of boil it down, here's, here's a thought. I don't think there's really anything in some ways. I mean, I think a single parent moms that do a lot of pretty unbelievable stuff. Here's the only thing I think that a woman cannot bring, that a man can bring, and that's God's rule. When God ordained it. If God, or, or they're gifted ladies, absolutely. Or they're ladies who are gifted in administration, absolutely. Gals gifted, gifted in leading, I think so. But there's something that God has ordained. I don't know, this, this is where I say it. When I watch Young Life groups over the years, I see Young Life groups that are led by ladies, and I see them do one of two things. I see them maintain or fall apart. When I watch a Young Life club that's led by men, that have godly men leading them, I see three things happen. I see them maintain, I see them fall apart, and I also see the potential for, and I've watched it, explosive growth. I can't tell you why. Sometimes a guy isn't even more gifted than the lady. But what I watch is somehow there's a rallying point. There's something that happens there that's pretty remarkable. I don't really understand it. I just watch it and see that. And so when I see that, I go, how does this affect American culture versus other cultures? Is this a, is this a biblical principle that even one country may be more matriarch than patriarchal? Does, is that wrong for that culture to be that way? Is it better to be another way? I'm not completely sure. I do know this, though. It seems like that God has placed this role within Scripture that when men take that role, things run best. Can things run good? Sure. I've seen churches run by lady leadership and run pretty good. But I've watched when men take the role and stand up courageously and say, God, I take your role. I'll, I'll do that. I watch explosive growth take place. It's pretty amazing. Let's turn to page... Um, the, the role, almost like a, a mantle that you put over your shoulders to be carrying with you. Something almost physical. Yeah. There's a, there's, a he, there's a biblical headship that, you know, in the absence of a man stepping into it, I think someone has to step into that. But I, I think godly men bring a headship, a biblical headship into any circumstance that, that if we abdicate that, if we surrender that, and our culture has a lot, a lot of families have surrendered that, you know, inner city, uh, men, they'll have a lot of kids, but they won't stick around to raise the kids, so they, they leave that leadership, and, and the women have to take it. Someone's got to take it. And a lot of those homes, if, if the lady doesn't take it because of work and everything else, TV, cousin, gangs, gangs take the headship. Someone will fill the void. There's a vacuum when men are silent and absent. And what we're petitioning to you is, again, back to the premise, is, is we need godly men that will step up, not shout out, but speak truth and love. Be the, be the protector, and we'll look at the other roles and how that plays out. But Let us not play into your insecurity of this means domineering again. Yeah. 
Okay, let it not play into that insecurity. I don't feel like I'm in charge. I don't feel like I, got, I, I understand this completely. And let that, that jump into this idea now. Well, I gotta take charge. I gotta, I gotta make it happen. I gotta become domineering. I gotta be, in fact, we're gonna look here in terms of this idea of what we're protecting is maybe gonna help, help us with the idea of not being domineering. Because what we help maybe is counterproductive if, if we take it out of our insecurity. Let's, let's, we'll look at that in a second. Let's look though first at, to build that, that premise, let's look at God gives ladies a companion almost ship, kind of a role. And so they have a role, we have a protector, they have a role that is a companion, that works alongside. It, it, Genesis talks about the idea that God made a helper to go alongside, a companion, so to speak. So the number one desire, this is Gary Smalley uh, gets credit for this statement, the number one desire of a woman is companionship. Good companionship needs a safe environment to develop and grow properly in. So the number one desire of a woman is companionship. Good companionship needs a safe environment to develop and grow properly. A companion, though, let me make sure we identify this. A companion is not a buddy that you just do things with. It's not just the person you go to the movies or hang out with at Starbucks or take a walk with in Memorial Park. Rather, a companion is a person who is bonded or is bonding with another. Remember that concept of cleaving? It's his ability to say, here's who I am, here's who you are, let's in a sense share who we are. This can be done in, in accountability groups, this can be done in friendship, this can be done uh, between a guy and a gal, and it can be done in marriage. The idea of having companionship, having a, in a sense a bonding or a connection between, it's, it's um, when I, I moved a lot growing up, it, it, it probably messed me up a lot right now, but, but I moved a lot. Every three or four years, we moved. And in that moving, oftentimes what I find is part of my heart would not want to move. I knew those people. I was connected to those people. Another part of me knew I had to move. My parents were moving, and I wouldn't have anything to eat if I didn't move with them, so I had to go with them. And so there's a part that just I had to do that. Now, us boys all look back and say that moving did something good for us. It really caused us to have to meet new people, Cause us to trust him, cause us to trust our family, rely upon those things. We saw a broad range of different types of people and stuff by doing that. But the one area that easily could have, uh, that in fact I still I struggle with, is the idea of bonding. I could easily then make friendship. I could make kind of companions. I could, or not, I could make less than companions. I could make buddies, and I'd have a gang of buddies. But I could easily find myself withdrawing away from and really sharing who I was. How's it going? Good. How you doing? Fine. And I could easily hide behind. A, a facade of everything's okay and never really share my heart with with another and so this idea let me let me talk, let's talk about another the, the most for most men the difficulty with bonding is that it requires communication and commitment so let me give you a little drawing here on how this this would look it requires communication and commitment and so this idea of companionship, the idea of protecting, I'm protecting in a sense a deep bond, I'm protecting in a sense the idea of an emotional connection. What happens oftentimes in our lives is we have this idea of commitment, which is expressed with communication. What we have though is involvement. Then we have God's will or direction. So 
So we have commitment and communication. We desire then that commitment that we had also know God's will or His direction in our lives. But what happens is a thing called involvement in the middle of it. As a single guy, I'll give this first as a, as a single guy, what happens is my commitment towards that gal is growing. Man, I kind of like her. I like hanging out with her. She's pretty cool. I've like talked a little bit. I'm starting to kind of kind of make a connection a little bit. But what happens is I start feeling some things. I start having some hankerings for her. I start instead, what happens is my involvement grows exponentially. And what happens is I start finding myself emailing and texting. I'm getting involved more. I start finding myself, hey, let's, let's, have, let's have some prayer meeting time. Let's have some, or I might find myself physically getting involved. I start finding myself dreaming about her. I might find myself fantasizing on her. I might find myself involved in ways that I think, wait, wait. What happens is, is this idea of God's will, as the sun kind of permeates itself, what God wants to do is grow this in my life. What happens is the shade from this involvement keeps this from ever growing. So I, the involvement in my life, and, and in that life, then shields me, so to speak, from understanding God's will. So I'm now, here I am, I'm a Christian guy. I'm walking into this situation. I've now gotten more involved than my commitment has really led me to. What I've done is I've, I now feel a little guilty about what's happened in my life. I start pulling back. I stay involved because I enjoy what I'm getting out of the involvement, but I start pulling back away from the commitment. I start finding myself then at that point saying, God, what's your will? And I find myself getting further and further and getting smaller and smaller, and this involvement maybe even continues growing. And so what God would want us to be involved with is that our commitment should lead our involvement. So instead, let this commitment grow to the appropriate size it needs to be. Let this involvement stay, then, then be secondary to the commitment. That way, when the sun comes to grow this, it has a direct line of communication. Because I've kept this and I've, I've held this back. I've kept the involvement down because, God, my involvement with you supersedes anything else. You, you are greater than. Here's how it works in married life. It works the same way as I get involved with my work. I start having troubles at home, and so what I start doing is I start letting this work become greater than my commitment. Wait, wait, my commitment to my family, that's a covenant relationship. I, but I start treating it as a secondary. It's as if it's a, a, not a covenant, it's a commitment. And so I start treating this less than. Maybe it's my kids. I start letting the kid, my involvement my kids outgrow my commitment to my wife. And so it supersedes that. And then I start asking God's will about our lives and where we're supposed to go. And I start having this other involvement, these other things supersede that and grow larger than. And so I start saying, God, what's your will? And I feel silence. I feel like I've been dwarfed. I feel like I've not grown. I feel like I'm far from. And I start having those involvement. And so this... You want to go? You, I can feel something that you're, you're no, brewing no, no, right no, over there. I, I, no, I would, I would feel bad. It would be taking us backwards. Okay. Go. We're doing good. Okay. We're doing good on time also. That's just amazing. They made, again, again we're, just, we're hopefully open your, your, your eyes to say, oh, that's how that works. Oh, I never thought about that. Well, yeah. Going back to the whole rules at the bottom and, and passions up at the top, My in my dating relationships, I'm a very passionate person, and so... I would meet a girl and we would have there be a connection and my passion would be there well beyond my commitment at all. And so, and I'm not saying it became sexual and all that. What I'm saying is there was just an involvement 
And I, I would overwhelm a, a girl, you know, with, with, with writing them a note or doing little things for them and wanting to spend all my time with them. And, and what I realized was that literally destroyed any chance of those relationships. And it, it took me until I was about 21 before God began to show me that that can happen. That's going to happen in my life, period. This commitment area, I've got to discipline it, and it comes first with how committed am I to God's ways, his moral boundaries for sexuality, his, his bedrock. And, and, and my commitment to Christ then creates a perfect environment for my commitment to a lady to grow in. And then that creates a perfect environment for me to raise children, a commitment to the children. But it's Christ first. Passions are a servant to Christ. Christ is not to be the servant of our passion. I don't know if that makes sense. But so when our, commi- our involvement gets greater than our, 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 our commitment, then what happens is a false oneness, a false intimacy, a false, because what's happened, what's left out of this is there's no, there's no growth coming from God. It's all involved with my, my involvement who I am, what I'm doing. And so it stays over here in this realm, which is just me and what I think and what I feel on it. And so it creates a false oneness. Rodiker says in uh, Choosing God's Best, he says, we create false oneness before we get married and uh, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Any one of those three. And we create something bigger than, involvement greater than, in a sense of commitment. And when that supersedes that, here's what I saw Eric Reed do. When he was dating uh, Stacy, his wife, what I saw him say was, I want to be very cautious that I don't lead her, in a sense, further in my involvement than I am or what I can, in a sense, produce when I'm married. And so what he did was he held back, reserved their, their, some of the things that he could do. So he didn't lavish her with gifts because he said, when I get married, I'm going to be involved in ministry. So I, I, can't, I don't want to buy her something that I can't produce later on. And then her expectations are here, but later on I can only produce this. Uh, I'm not going to be uh, involved in a way. I'm not going to do things that, in a sense, when I get married, I couldn't maintain or couldn't do as good or better than down the road. Again, all these things, as we talk about this idea of, of singleness and all that, still all are still true within marriage in the areas of kids, in the marriage, uh, the area of work, in the areas of you can put just about anything in the, in the place that in our involvement, and those things become greater. It can produce a false one. That's how affairs begin. That's how affairs begin. My involvement emotionally with someone else supersedes my commitment to my wife and my family and to my God. And so what happens is this starts growing. And then later on I say, I, I just love her. I care about her. I just, I, 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 I leave my family, my wife, because what happens is a false oneness has occurred. I feel bonded to this, but who's been left out is God's direction and God's will. And so this always has to stay smaller than our relationship, our commitment to our God, our commitment to our family, our commitment to those things that are godly rules, godly principles, and thus godly roles. Boyd, Boyd, I hope we haven't passed too far down the road on that. Yeah. One of the hard lessons in life that I learned the hard way is that commitment does not work without communication. Communication does not work without yeah. You need that healthy balance 
in order to invoke yeah. involvement. When we talk about commitment, there's all this is communication. I, again, I, I, you, can super, you can put that word right in there, and oftentimes that's what we're talking about, communication about what's going on, how I feel, how I think, what's going on. That's a good point. Thanks for bringing us back to that. Look at these questions. Have you ever had second thoughts about your communication with the women in your life? And we're not talking just about your, your wife or just about, but women could be at work. Have you ever had felt convicted by the Holy Spirit about any boundaries you've crossed? Is there been areas in which, oh man, yeah. And in, in this world, I, I, I get after single adults, as if I'm a single adult minister, I, 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 we talk about this. When, when, my, when my private world doesn't match my public world, I tell every girl, run. When he privately is having a communication with you different than his public world, run. It's a man you don't want to be involved with. Men, we take the step forward and say, hey, let me pursue you. Let me be involved. I'd like to ask you out. I'd like to take you to. I'd like to get to know you. Those things are done with intention. They're intentionality. Those are done in public. Those are done beforehand. When I have a, a lady, I, ladies I work with, I tell them, my door does not shut at a private meeting unless my secretary is here. I even, when a lady walks in my office, in fact, I even do it with men these days, but I don't lash the door. If they're having a commitment, I say to my secretary, hey, we're going to be talking for a little bit, and I shut the door, but I don't latch it. If it's a really private conversation, I kind of come and say, hey, I'm going to shut the door, we're going to be here. If you got anything you need, you can knock on the door. She can always interrupt. I'm going to tell the person who's there also, hey, this conversation is very important, but I have one rule in my life that my wife can interrupt me anytime. Derek knows this. So when she calls, I'm going to, I'm going to take that call and say, hey, I'm in a meeting right now. Can I give you a call back? Oh, yeah, yeah. My wife can interrupt. My commitment to my wife is greater than that meeting I'm having with that lady. The, the, if I can't take her call, something is going on, I call my wife back and say, hey, I was in a meeting I'm with so-and-so. When I send an email to someone, especially the lady, I put a CC on it. It's a public email is not an emotional good spot to ever share. It is a business transaction that is taking place. It is public, not private. We, we, we think it somehow. So on that, I Holly Crane, my secretary, CC'd Amy Kuntz, my associate, just because, no big deal, nothing can be said, but I just send CC that. Why? Because my communication, my commitment, it supersedes my involvement with someone. And so they, this is a professional uh, involvement with them because I never want to be apart from knowing what God's will is and God's direction in my life. His communication supersedes any of my communication. Everybody follow me on it? So if some of these things are happening, you look like, ooh, some of my communication with ladies has been less than best. Some of my commitment has been in ways better than not the way it needs to be. Now, again, let me, let me throw one other area here, and, and Eric can talk further about this if you'd he, like, but it's also as true in fantasy world, okay? Fantasy world for us as men, we have difficulty in this. What we start to do is we have an involvement that is complete fantasy. It may include masturbation. It may include pornography. It may include just daydreaming. It may dream about being someplace other than where we are. So fantasy world can be just as much of a killer, just as much of an involvement as anything that is real that we are actually tangibly doing. Okay? So let me throw that little caveat. Let's look at this verse here. The Bible provides clear instruction on how we can develop our communication skills before marriage. Look at this verse. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2. <clears throat> Somebody read that out loud that hasn't read yet. Do not rebuke an older brother, older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, 
older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with absolute purity. The word purity is means to look into a pot, a clay pot, to look into a clay pot, to hold it up to the sun, and to look and to see if there's any cracks or fissions in it. Because what you're going to do is you're going to pour your most valuable oil, the thing that would sustain you as a, as a Hebrew society, you'd pour your oil into that. If it leaches out because there's a crack in it, if it leaches out, then you've lost one of your most valuable resources. Your ability as men to pour something purely in, in a sense, and not be a crackpot, okay, <laughs> is critical. And so as we look into that, are we whole? Are we treating our relationships holy? Are we treating them appropriate? Are we treating them in ways that are better than what we'd even godly? We're treating them the way that only God would want us to have them. Everybody follow? I want to look at the next section there on what does protection mean? Uh, I think it's very easy. What, what are some of the things that come to our mind in the realm of protection? What are some images, some phrases that maybe come to mind? Yeah, f physical protection uh, very, very quickly comes to mind. A shield. A shield. Security. Security. David, you mentioned the emotional side. Um, probably the last 15 years, I think that's, that's gotten a little bit more awareness in our culture. Um, when I was a kid, they only talked about physical abuse. I remember when I got in college, I started hearing this phrase, emotional abuse. I don't know if you all, you know, you've heard those phrases. And then about eight years ago, I started hearing a phrase, or 10 years ago, spiritual abuse. I started hearing spiritual abuse. And I was like, wow, that's sad. Didn't know about that. You know, it's like, started hearing. So, so when we talk protection, it's going to go a whole lot further than having a Smith & Wesson, having an alarm system, you know, a, a guy make some lewd comment to your wife or your girlfriend, you're at an Astros game, that guy's had too many beers, and so you step outside to settle it like men. It goes well beyond all of those things. And in fact, if, if Paul is accurate with what he says, he says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness. In other words, there is a spiritual attack that goes on in our life, in the life of the ladies that we will interact with, whether married or single, men of God and brothers of Christ, whether they're married or single, there's a battle going on. And we relegate it to, I'm going to get in the gym, hit the weights, learn this, learn that, get a concealed handgun license. We will protect one facet of their life, and we will allow the enemy to ravage the rest of their life. And we would call that being really short-sighted. And so, as we look at here, let me give you a definition from Webster's. It says protection is the act of protecting. It's the act of protecting. Do you all have this written down in there? Okay. It's the act of protecting. It's the state of being protected. Defense. Someone has already said this. Shelter. Passport. Encouragement of home industry by duties on import, bounties. So it's a lot. But the, the key phrase is it's an act of, it's a state of, it's a shelter. 
those things are protection. A protector is one who protects from injury or oppression. An injury doesn't have to just be physical. Oppression doesn't have to just be physical. <coughs> I can oppress my wife emotionally real easy. I have, remember we want to learn, we want to love, and we want to lead. Remember those, that principle? In my learning, I know her sore spots and weak areas. I know them. And I can wound her tremendously by, in a disagreement, coming around and, and punching her emotionally in that area. Whatever that area. You know, using that to hurt her as opposed to using it so I can love her well and speak encouragement into that area. So, so in this, let me give you the concept of protection brings to mind images of a safe haven. That's the first image, a safe haven or a resting place. A safe haven or a resting place. Don is our resident artist, oh, yeah. and so he... You want me to draw these on your paper sometime, and I'll be glad to sign them, and you can use them for <laughs> some on eBay at any point. But you have a, a this map. This is drawn to scale. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, a, this is a map, and so you have, you know, your different ports of entry in the United States, and so we have Boston and New York City, we have Washington and the Potomac and all that area kind of thing. We have Mobile, we have Florida. But when we're out, in a sense, a boat's out on the, uh, uh, yeah, this is, this is Galveston. It's, it's, it's oh, the yeah. largest yeah. port. Yeah. Galveston, yeah, that's what I meant to say. I meant to put Galveston on that. And then, but we, when we're out in the sea of life, so to speak, when, when the storms get big and things are blowing through and all that stuff, we have precious cargo on that ship. As a, as a seaman, what we do to, to, to make sure that cargo does not get destroyed is we go to a safe haven. We go to a harbor. We go someplace to make sure. We go to a port to make sure that things, those things that are precious to us stay safe. And so the picture of this idea of being the protector is the idea of a safe haven, a port in which we can make sure that our valuable goods are not lost to sea and out of the world. So in that, major importance is placed on, and I want to say the atmosphere that's created and maintained for women and others. In other words, we are accountable for the atmosphere of our workplace, the atmosphere of our Bible study class, the atmosphere of our home. And, and let me give you some of the characteristics. It's a grace-filled atmosphere. Grace needs to be there. Um, there was a marriage conference this weekend, and they talked about it. You cannot create what you have not experienced. If you haven't experienced the grace of God setting you free from your sins, you'll never, as a husband... As a boyfriend, as a Sunday school leader, you would never be able to create an environment where grace can actually happen. It needs to be an environment of encouragement. I want to build you up. I want to build them up. And so what that looks like in there is, is ultimately, it's, it's a very real phrase. You're unleashing who God has created them to be. It's part of your job. In sports psychology, they did a study on gold medal winners. And this was done back in the 80s. And they looked back over the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. And they came up with the people that made the Olympics. They had all different types of motivations in their life. But for the people that won gold medals, like 90-some-odd percent of them, the number one driver for them was a desire to succeed. For people that got the bronze medal, people that didn't even medal, but they got there, but they... Their driver was a fear of failure. And those two, one is really positive and one is really negative, 
And you got to figure out as a coach, as a person that sets the climate for a team, you will get the most from people when you believe in them, you speak that into them, you encourage them. And so it's really trying to create an example. And, and, and Don did this with his wife. And it's been, I want to say, five years now? Has it been so five years? I don't years? know which, which story was you're on. Uh, her, her book that she wrote. Um, seven, eight years. But As I said, time flies when we're having fun. Um, you want to share a little bit of, of just how, how you yeah, created Denise came, that? Yeah, Denise came to me and asked if she, uh, she felt like God had called her to write a book. And... Uh, Every husband's wildest dreams. You and, got uh, what, three kids at that point, or uh, at that time we only had uh, one, but then we had our second one, and then uh, third one in the process of all that. And so she uh, she came to that, and so I said, "Oh, that's great, honey. I'm, I'm all for you." So for the uh, next uh, several uh, weeks, months, she started getting up at four in the morning, and she started writing. She's a morning person, so she started writing at four in the morning, and she'd write till six, and then she'd tap me on the shoulder and get me up, and so they kind of start for both of us. And so she started doing that, um, which made, means that she was very tired at night, it's nighttime. So she basically said, hey, if I get up at that time, would you make sure that you put Abby to bed? So at the time, we were struggling with Abby reading. So I thought, well, I guess it's a good time to kind of get reading going. So we started reading at night together and kind of reading through things. And I thought if I just read long enough, eventually she would catch on, which eventually she did. It took years. But anyway, she, um, but at the same time, Denise brought me her first manuscript. She brought it to me. And I started reading through it. And I go, oh, that's great. This is, hey, you know, there's one thing here I really think you could emphasize better, da da da. And I could see in just in her countenance immediately, this is go, And I, so I try to backpedal a little bit like every guy does. And, well, you know, but, yeah, hey, this is really strong. And the next morning I go, Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to do on this. I was, I was just giving her construction kind of ideas. He says, you're not supposed to give any criticism. You're not supposed to, in fact, you stay out of it. Oh, what do you mean? Stay out of it. You can read it, but don't. You just read it. You stay out of it. So then I went back to her and said, Hey, honey, I think what I'm supposed to do is let you write it. And I think my best deal is to make sure that you have 4 o'clock or 6 o'clock, nighttime I got taken care of. And I, and I know it sounds really weird, but I don't want to read it. What? I don't think I'm supposed to be the person who reads it for you. And she goes, Well, I want you to. I. I in fact, let me just say it this way. I can't read it. Oh. Uh, again, I love you. I'm, I'll take care of the Abby at the evening time. I'll, you do that. And so, uh, but if you find someone else to do that, I, I, I would really be benefiting. In fact, I never read the thing until she was completely done with it. It had already been published. It already had uh, somebody. They, it was already out. And then that was the first time I ever read it. And it was unbelievable. But what, what the problem was is, as a pretty direct guy who has pretty straightforward opinions... I crushed her. And if I would have been her, in a sense, coach or whatever, it would have just gone nowhere. And so for the next four years, she got up at four in the morning, six o'clock, and she read and she wrote and she got all those things down. The cage said, what do you think about this? And I said, well, let me, let me, I often have that even good thing, Laura, let me, what, what should I do? She's asked me this question before I gave her any kind of, you know, kind of ideas or beyond that. I believe oftentimes what we do is we force ourselves into something that we shouldn't be involved in. We have an opinion about something. We're supposed to, we think we've got to get to do it this way, and we're supposed to back away from those things and say, are we creating the right atmosphere or protecting our wives, even in a good thing, necessarily? Yeah. I just I wanted you all to hear that because 
I don't know what dreams uh, maybe future spouses or current spouses have and what call God may have on their life, but part of being a man is being secure enough to allow them. I always think about Beth Moore's husband as well. Uh, he should be intimidated to no end, but I mean, he's the most secure, laid-back, confident, God-honoring, unleash his wife, pray for his wife, join her. As he said public many times, I've blessed her. God's given her a gift. Yeah. And his job is to protect that for her to carry it out. He's, that's, he knows that's his role. So it's, it's neat that we are the guardians and the protectors of the atmosphere. And, and as y'all can see in your blanks here, we've already said emotionally, spiritually, physically. Emotionally, spiritually, physically. And the godly and confident man, in other words, we, we don't find this in our flesh. Our confidence isn't in the flesh, it's in Christ. Is also capable of making it safe to communicate the deeper things of life, not just facts and opinions, but hopes, dreams, and fear. And, and I would just add in there that we have to actually learn how to listen and ask questions and try to understand. Try to understand. And if you are a single man, I would, man, I would exhort you, learn it now. Uh, early in my marriage, my wife would share stuff and I would absolutely get in fix-it mode. Oh, honey, you shouldn't feel that way. And I would start telling her exactly why she shouldn't feel that way. And that would never go positively. It never went positively. And when I just began to sit back and say, Okay, God, help me know my wife's heart so that I might support her, love her, pray for her better. Way different. Huge difference. Earned her trust. She now wanted to follow my leadership where before it was almost adversarial over certain areas of our marriage and certain areas of life. Um, Don, you want to jump on the So let's look at a passage here that talks about this idea of protection. In fact, I think when you first read it, you won't necessarily see that, but we'll, we'll, let me unpack this a little bit. Let's turn to, uh, on, your, on your page there, somebody read Genesis uh, 18, 19. Where, uh, Greg is, Greg is uh, teaching on Abraham right now, and uh, so let's take a, book, a story right from Abraham. Somebody read... Uh, Chapter 18, verse 19 of Genesis. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children in his household after him, and keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. For the Lord will bring about to Abraham what he has promised. Here's what's unbelievable about this passage. We see all the four roles of man actually in this one, in this one verse. And so here, the, the mission of Abraham, according to the passage, is that he carries out his role. He directs his children as household. That's the role of leader guide, which we'll talk about further later on. But that's the role of leader guide. He's going to direct his children as household. And then it says, after him. He's setting the example. You see that? After him. So he's setting this example. It's the leader guide and the idea of being the spiritual teacher. And so you see the leader guide by him directing. You see this after him. He sets the example. It's the leader guide and the spiritual teacher. Then he said, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just... You see the idea of the spiritual teacher again there. To keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And then that God, the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. God provider. So you see these, these three rules. But you say, well, where's the protector at, Don? Where, where did that come from? But notice that the whole passage, what's the, what's the whole essence of this? And I present that this passage is all about protection. He creates the right atmosphere so that all the rest of the rules can take place. As the right atmosphere takes place, as we create a safe haven, then what happens is 
we can now provide, we can now be a spiritual leader or teacher, we can now be a leader and a guide. But if the atmosphere is not set, precursor, if in a sense I don't have the cargo in a safe place, I can never unload the cargo. I can never reload it. I can never go back out to see it appropriate with appropriate supplies needed. And so as we look at this whole analogy, the one of the most critical parts of it is that we you ever notice that uh, good coaches and bad coaches? And oftentimes the good coach creates an atmosphere in which you can do your best. It's not so much what he said, the X's and O's. The bad coach oftentimes had the X's and O's. But the good coach also had a belief in you that you could see, resonate, and feel. I mean, the screamer, I don't know, I don't know what coaches sometimes think, but the screamer who didn't care for me, I never responded to. I did my job because they didn't want to get screamed at. But in terms of being motivated to do my best, the guy who I knew loved me, back Coach Lewis, I'm, the small, I'm always thinking football was the next to the smallest guy on the football team. Coach Lewis would yell at us. But Coach Lewis one time pulled me aside and says, hey, you know what, Donnie? I would never call Donnie by anybody except coaches. Hey, Donnie, you are good. Man, you are tough. I love the way, and he told me specifically what I did. You go get them. You can do this. You know what, Coach Lewis, I would do anything for him. I'd run through the brick wall without my helmet on. I mean, I'd do whatever it needed to be because that guy believed in me. That guy created an atmosphere that I then at that point could do all my best work, that I would be completely compelled at. And somehow he took that. Now, Coach Potoff, he just yelled at me. He just screamed at me. I just saw what I could get away with, what I had to do to please him, and then do whatever I needed to around it. But when that Coach Lewis believed in me, that man was unbelievable. And so this idea of setting the atmosphere, see the atmosphere that Abraham sets is an atmosphere so all those things, all those roles can take place. Coach Dungy says it this way, guys, this is loud, I'm going to talk. What I have to say to you is important. It will lead you to this championship. And so as I say it, I will not yell at you, I will not scream at you, because it's too important for me to waste my time and effort trying to get you to listen. Because what I say, everything I say is important. So please listen. And so the idea, so God is our strength. Because oftentimes I think we come to the point of going, I don't think I can do this. I don't know if I can create the right atmosphere. I've messed it up so many times. I've, I have fear about this. It's, it's a struggle for me. And so God wants to though, be our strength. Let's look at, someone read Isaiah 49, 24 through 25. Can plunder be taken? Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. That was really cool. That was like, <laughs> that was like a stereo. Yeah, I really like cool. that. If y'all could do it. Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fears? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunder retreat from the fears. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children I will the idea is that the safe harbor is oftentimes beyond us. You see, God contends for us. He makes that safe. If we can't make it, say, Lord, I can't do it. It's beyond me. I, I want to scream right now. I want to yell. I want to lose my cool. I want to be beyond it. At that point, God says, let me continue with that, that enemy. Let me continue with that emotion. Let me continue with what's going on in your heart and life. Let me let you speak up. Let me hold, let you hold back. And he then contends for us. He fights for us. Later on in, in Luke, it says... The Spirit of the Lord is on me. You see, 
when God indwells you, there's something more than you. When you say, hey, I don't know if I can create this. I don't know if I can do that. When the Spirit of God is within you at that point, then what He does is He has an ability to be the God of peace. And when you need peace, right in the midst of all that struggle, all that work, all that stuff going on, when, when all those things happen that you didn't want or didn't expect, when all that, He is in the midst of that, His Spirit is upon you, and that ability to have peace in the midst of that. My dad would walk home. He had an ability to create the atmosphere. Mom could be screaming at us all day long. And when dad walked home, things changed. He didn't necessarily have to say anything. He didn't necessarily have to do a lot. But when dad walked home, when my boys, when I walk in the house, the house changes. It just does. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to say anything. But God's spirit that lives in you changes the whole dynamic of what goes on in your life, guys. And as we trust him, say, God, I don't know how to, I don't know how to create this atmosphere. I don't know how to do this. Can you give me the wisdom not to, not to just to lose it with my wife? Can you teach me how to speak up when I, on, this, on this tough point? Can you teach me what to say, what not to say? Can you create a, a safe atmosphere for all these things? The, uh, there are men that don't have dads that, that lead that way and model that. Um, when I turned 21, my dad sort of shared his story with me. And... He had never shared it with my older brother. He was sort of ashamed of it. Uh, he didn't have a dad. Um, raised by an aunt in the sticks of Tennessee. Uh, was during the Depression. You know, was not a, a really pretty pleasant deal. And I remember asking him, I was like, well, if you never had a dad, how did you become such a good dad? Now, he wasn't perfect. The man, he, you know, if look around, I'm like, man, I was blessed to have the dad I had, the mom I had. And my dad pointed down to a couple of passages, but Psalm 68.5, listen to this. This is God speaking. Psalm 68.5, write that down. It's not in your notes. Psalm 68.5, it says, A father of the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. Then my dad told me, he says, Eric, I've tried to be to you everything that God has been to me. And that's all I know of being a dad. Is there anything else to know about being a dad? I mean, seriously? I mean, God is the perfect father. You look in the New Testament. It says that the earthly fathers chastise and discipline as they think best, but God does it perfectly. He's the perfect father. If you don't know your perfect father, it's really hard to father. And for us to recognize, no matter what background I've come out of, God is my perfect father. And if I go to him and I say, God, teach me how to lead. Teach me how to protect. I never saw this in my home. I want to see it, God. I want to let it happen. God will honor that prayer. That doesn't mean you pray it one day and the next day it's, hey, it's great. Going to a class like this, getting with a couple of other men that maybe had a strong father, finding an older man as a mentor, persisting in your prayers to God, getting engaged in counseling. You know, there, there are different things that men may need to do so that they might live out this as God's being our Father. And this verse, that was his, my dad's strength. I want to shift gears real quick to our Bible study classes because I think that is, a, uh, that is a great opportunity for everyone in this class, for every one of us to engage as a biblical man. 
If you're not involved, if you just sort of come and hear Pastor Greg and disappear into the night and it's sort of this anonymous, I, I come and I get out, and I come and I get out, I want to call you to really pray about coming and investing, coming and connecting, and trust God in that, in that journey. What does a man defend his Bible study from? What are some of the things that need to be defended from in a Bible study class? Creating the right atmosphere. Keep yeah. Think of that in mind. False teachings. Could definitely, uh, could definitely be, yeah. I've taught for a long, 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 long time, and I've never been offended when somebody's come up to me and said, Hey, Eric, I appreciate all the prep you did on that lesson. I've got a question for you. I was a little confused when you said blah, 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 blah. I'm like, I'm, I'm always impressed. It doesn't mean I always agree. Sometimes I'll agree to disagree, but, but I'm impressed that a man cared enough about the truth of God that he would actually engage in a, in a helpful, constructive way. Not a, you know, oh, you're horrible, but, but actually engaging like a man to another man and having that conversation. Great. Guarding against false teaching, having accountability there. What else? From, uh, from personal views. Mm. Anything other than oh God. Thinking more in the uh, sort of how we, how we treat people, how we view people, sort of a surfacey type of look, or, or what do you, help me understand that. Uh, just, uh, what I notice in a lot of Bible study groups is it sometimes boils down to opinions more than uh, God's. Yeah. If it's not, the focus is not God, then what's the value? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that the protection of Bible study is more worldly. Think about divisions. Think about how divisions can happen in classes. Disunity, gossip, those types of things. Or a, an unsafe culture. Who could, how could a class really grow and mature if everyone's afraid to actually share what's really going on because somebody's going to crack a joke about it and they're going to bring it up at lunch and then they're going to email about it. You've just destroyed the very foundational element of the body of Christ, which is this intrinsic trust in the love of God that manifests itself in how we love each other. We blow it. And as men, we got to guard that. We have to guard it. We have to guard it against negativity. As a coach, uh, I was coming back from a wrestling tournament, and it was late. We had been in a wrestling tournament all day long in Dallas. We were driving back. We were tired. We got a cell phone call, and our football team had lost in the state playoffs. And apparently, the head football coach went for two instead of for one and when he went for two instead of handing it off to a running back that had all these state records he did a fake play action fake and tried to pass it to a tight end that had never had a pass all year all he had done is block all the guys in the bus are are just you know ripping the coach it was the dumbest decision ever and then the assistant coach 
not the football coach, but assistant wrestling coach, said, yeah, man, I can't believe he said that. Well, as soon as that bus hit our parking lot and the other guys were gone, I pulled him to the side, and I was, Harwell was a lot bigger than me, and I was just like, hey, listen, I never want to hear you demean another coach in front of athletes again. The reason why is that that culture, that community, he wasn't protecting. He can think that all he wants, but as soon as he lays it out there, it affects the whole team and how we view coaches, camaraderie, and all of that. It becomes critical. Does that make sense? So we guard against that. In our home, I know we don't have a lot of time now, but in our home, we guard against several things as well. Uh, that would be a good discussion for you to have, you know, following this, but to think about in your home specifically, what are things that you probably need to guard, guard against and how do you need to set the tone? And ultimately, think about it. What is that emotional tone of your home, your apartment, your job, your class, your accountability group, wherever you are, look at it and evaluate it. And if you notice a common theme, then ask God, am I, am I bringing it down or am I making it, am I picking it up? What am I doing? How am I influencing it? Am I being the thermostat or am I being the thermometer? And I think as men, we have to be that thermostat that sets the tone the best we can in there. Uh, one of the basic needs that a man has is to protect emotional intimacy. And these are the, the BBC is belonging, value, and competence. Value, belonging, and competence. Uh, Robert Lewis uses an expression that every child needs to hear three things every day from their dad. I love you. I'm proud of you. And you're good at, just fill in the blank, whatever it is. I don't do this every day, but I say, usually I get two or three of those in there within every two days, but I'm looking for it. And so it's, yeah, I told my daughter on the way over here, her best friend wasn't at swim practice today and sick, and she hates to be out there with a lot of kids she doesn't know. And I told her when she got in the car, I said, I'm really proud of you today. And she said, why? I said, you faced your fear and you went to swim practice today. And daddy couldn't be any more proud of you because you face a fear and you know that God is with you even when you're outnumbered and you don't know other people. And she said, I had a fun time. I was like, well, great. Because Monday, she sat in my office and cried and wouldn't go. So today, she went. Progress, big step. But I wanted her to hear that. Think about Christ, Matthew 3. He gets baptized and the very first thing he hears is what? This is my beloved son in what? in whom I am well pleased. God gave him a sense of belonging, a sense of value, and at the end of his life, he gave him competence. He affirmed him again, but he said how good he had done. He had done this good work. So if, if there's not any emotional intimacy, the opposite becomes true, and we lose belonging, we lose value, we lose a sense of competency, and so I would say the two areas for all of our Bible study classes that the necessary is safety and enjoyment. A safe place to share what's going on, and there's an excitement and a joy about it because it's positive. It's encouraging and creating that, whether that's at home, Bible study class, accountability group, you name it. What if you have trouble finding something positive? So. Uh, give me an example without I've got a, using uh, it. My, my in-laws, they uh, have three kids. Uh, she, uh, the, the wife, has a uh, 
it, it seems so uh, so honest. You know, like if they don't do well in the sport or in, a, in an event, she'll just say, "You really stunk it up today, didn't you?" That, uh, and, mm. But it's real honest, and they and she she believes that that really encourages because they say, "Well, yeah, I did." Like they, it, uh, you know, it kind of goes against the "I'm proud of you. You're good at." Yeah, I don't think you do that in a disingenuous way, but I think what you say is, I mean, I coached for like seven years, six and a half years, and, and Don and I had a very similar experience. My wrestling coach in the seventh grade nicknamed me Orphan Arms, okay? I was, I was the smallest kid on the team. I was like a little spider out there. I was the smallest kid in my high school, in my school. And he called me Orphan Arms. And then the next day, it's like, you're like the care poster child which is now compassion, okay? And, and, and here's 120 other wrestlers, and they're all looking at me, and they're laughing. How do you think I performed for that coach on a regular basis? I didn't. I didn't. He never got the best. My cross-country coach, Coach Chu, not a Christian, this other guy, a Christian, Coach Chu, a devout Jew, cancer survivor, he called me Big E. I was the smallest guy on the team, and he called me Big E. How do you think I performed for him? Great, great. Okay, and what I'm saying is, for me is I would say in that situation, I would look at the kid and I would say, God, who could they be if they work really hard? Who could they be if they focused on it? And I would say, man, you gave your all out there today, didn't you? Yeah. I believe if you keep practicing, like if you notice how they're practicing, if you keep practicing this way, you're going to beat that guy next time you wrestle him, or you can be this. And I, I would give them vision. I would speak who they could be, and I did that with my cross-country team. At the beginning of every season, they wrote down their goals. Just one last, one last yeah. probe of it. So if you don't see the effort, if they're not given 100%, how would you handle it? So I would imagine Well, you believe happens. in the salt of, uh, salt of a friend is, uh, is uh, what was the... Uh, Faithful are the wounds, wounds of a, of a friend. friend. Faithful is the wounds of a friend. And so there's an aspect of that, which if they know you love them, then I think you can be. If, you, if the atmosphere is set, it says they know you love them. This is an atmosphere. At that point, I think you, you've got to say yeah. some stuff that correct correction. This is not a only say good, don't say bad. But I think, um, you know, yeah, but Coach Lewis was tough on me. He believed in me. But he was tough on me, but I knew he believed in me. So. Uh, commitment and love, that relationship, if you haven't invested in it, it it's going to be a lose-lose deal. And so creating that and being intentional in that early on is huge, especially for parents. Uh, it's really tough for blended families yeah, be because you jump in midstream with a kid that has never seen you, never known you, and there's a little distrust, and it's I, hard. I think you're getting I, I think it's very hard to give whatever be directly honest feedback, however you want to describe it, unless you have built trust with that individual. That, that tone of trust gives you the ability to in love share truth. If you don't have that, I think it's just very hard to get yeah, and so this is not flattery, it's, yeah. but you can be straightforward with people. And there's a way to say things that are tough to say without it being, you know, unspoken. So I like all those things, I think. But it's, it's the right. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 13 says that God, uh, 
But his mercy overshadows his judgment. Uh, uh, John uh, 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Uh, but he, 17. Uh, 3.17, yeah, yeah. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. And once he sent his son for something really good, but that the world through it might be saved. I, I think you're yeah, bringing all, all the, that together. All that, you see this, there's, a, there's an aspect of love that can be tough, but it has to be, there's a, there's a couch of the motivation of that would have to be. So the atmosphere of this house, the atmosphere of this class, the atmosphere of these places must be the one that would say, that guy really, yeah, he's, he, he loves me, he cares about me, he wants the best for me, all those things. So, Time frame, we're going to uh, stop here today. There's a, a page we're going to go through. This will be our last thing we do. It's, uh, it's, uh, it says, uh, creating harbors of safety, emotional uh, uh, intimacy possible kind of idea. Again, this is uh, this is taking that communication. It's taking that uh, commitment. It's making that greater. It's uh, so that they create a right atmosphere for these things. Uh, and I, I really believe that the way of the men uh, is the way of the church. The way of the men is often have you set such a, a tone of everything going on. And so uh, let me just pray uh, with that in mind. Father, uh, you've given us a great calling. You've given us something that can be uh, done by, uh, by us. And so as men, Father, we pray we would do it. Father, we would, not out of our fear or insecurity, not out of our, our lack of, but out of your fullness, we would carry out what you called us to carry out. So, Father, let us be that safe haven. Let us, let us create in that work environment, that, that church environment, that home environment, that uh, apartment environment, where that might be, a place that is safe. In fact, maybe so safe that people can be themselves. Maybe so safe that folks can just maybe even let go of some things. And so, Father, uh, let this, uh, this idea of safety be not a mamsy-pamsy, can't say something, but let it be so uh, encouraging, just like a football coach would say, I believe in you, and as you carry this role out, that we would carry it out. If we do something wrong, they can say it, but at the same time, they'd encourage us to do even better. We would believe that and understand that. Father, we thank you that you have created an atmosphere in which we can come to your throne a holy, perfect God, and yet we can come to you. And we are safe, and we are, it is a resting place for us. So, Father, let that be true in our, in our lives here on earth. In Christ's name I pray.